popular memory about World War One was very much alive all the way out to the 1950s. So that popular memory about Sefer Berlik, people called the war as Sefer Berlik, got pretty much lost and transformed under the huge impact of nationalist history writing. Yit Akin is the author of a new book entitled When the War Came Home. The more I studied World War One and its social history, uh, the more I realized it's not really possible to think the Ottomans' Great War experience separately or isolated from the Balkan War experiences. Akin argues that the experience of the Balkan Wars taught the Ottoman leadership a number of lessons and reshaped their understanding of modern combat and mobilization. Of all the major belligerents, the Ottomans were least prepared to fight such a huge and long conflict. And above all, the losses of the Balkan Wars underscored the potential stakes of another defeat. Another defeat, they were pretty sure, would spell the disintegration, the end of the empire. When the Ottomans entered the First World War in fall 1914, they lacked much of what this new industrial warfare required. The empire had few factories, far fewer railways, and less money than its adversaries in Great Britain, France, and Russia. The absence of those did not make the Ottoman war less total than the other belligerents. The opposite is true. Mobilization required the labor of every person and animal in the empire, and the demands of war took a heavy toll on civilian populations throughout. Almost every neighborhood, almost every single village uh, experienced disaster of the war. There was no escape for that. Join us in this conversation with Yit Akin. We'll not only examine the lived experience of the First World War, but also how that experience transformed Ottoman society and politics, leaving an impact that would last long after the fighting had stopped. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Susie Ferguson. Today on the podcast, we're revisiting a familiar topic for our program, the Ottoman experience of the First World War. Uh, and this is a special episode because we have a return guest who I think about six years back came on the program to talk about his ongoing work on the subject of the Ottoman home front during the First World War. Yeats, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Susie, for having me in this lovely but hot and humid Istanbul afternoon. Yes. Uh, an afternoon much like the afternoon we recorded on six years ago when you were working on this project. Yit Akin is now associate professor uh, in the Department of History at Tulane University and the author of a published book with Stanford University Press called When the War Came Home. In this episode, we'll revisit some of the themes we talked about before, the social history uh, of the First World War and the Ottoman Empire. But then we're going to talk more broadly about the subject of how war transformed the Ottoman Empire the First World War, but also other wars that the Ottoman Empire was involved in in its last years. And so maybe that's the first place uh, we can start. One of the new things you've introduced is the role of the Balkan Wars as sort of a continuity with the experience of the First World War. Tell us more about why it's so important uh, to start out with the Balkan Wars period for understanding the Ottoman experience of this global war. That's not a chapter that I had in the dissertation. That's one of the new chapters that I wrote from scratch. I mean, the reason for that is the more I studied World War I and its social history, uh, the more I realized it's really unthinkable. It's not really possible to think World War I or the Ottomans' Great War experience separately or isolated from the Balkan War experiences. And the reason for that is Balkan War is really transformative experience for the Ottoman politics, Ottoman military, Ottoman society. 
um, all of them were deeply, deeply affected uh, by what happened in that short but catastrophic war uh, for the Ottomans. That's, of course, not the first war of the Ottomans or mo first modern war of the Ottomans. They fought, like, for example, a disastrous Doksunic Harbi, uh, Russo Ottoman mm -hmm. War. Then in 1897, they fought um, a smaller war uh, against the Greeks and they won it. They lost it on the table, but they won it on the battlefield. That's much smaller scale. And again in Tripoli, uh, they fought in 1911, which led to the loss of the last remaining uh, African territory of the Ottomans. But none of them were as transformative uh, as the Balkan Wars. Balkan Wars were important to understand the Great War experience for two reasons, basically. One of them, it allowed the uh, defeat, the catastrophic defeat in the First Balkan War, allowed the Unionists to observe and take lessons about the modern war, about how the warfare has changed in the previous decades. They observed this very clearly, they observed this very disastrously, but they took good lessons. They took lessons, the most important lesson they took from that experience is um, a horrible realization. The realization that they cannot really, uh, or the Ottoman state in general, cannot really mobilize its resources for a modern war. It cannot mobilize its material resources. It cannot mobilize, more importantly, it cannot uh, mobilize its manpower resource. If you read, for example, the issues of 1913-10, this is the uh, Unionist mouthpiece, right? They continuously talk about uh, the reasons of the defeat and they continuously underline the failure of the empire to mobilize. You know, you note in the book that uh, you find the Ottoman Empire sort of uniquely um, unable to mobilize these resources, both in the Balkan War period and then later on in the Great War. Um, why do you think that is? First of all, they identify, the Unionists identify a couple of reasons. Uh, the most important reason is they don't have uh, the necessary tools to do that. By tools, they mean the laws, regulations, policies, and the ground. And as a result, I, when I mentioned the lessons, one of the most important, if not the most important lesson taken from the Balkan Wars is the need for a more comprehensive uh, law of, mobile, uh, law of uh, conscription. Hence, May 1914, extremely comprehensive, extremely tight uh, new law of conscription, which required every single Ottoman male, but the loyal, uh, royal family, members of the royal family, and obliged them to do their military service. So that's, that's something unprecedented in the Ottoman history. So the Ottomans entered the Great War with that comprehensive uh, new law of conscription. Did that include the empire's non-Muslim subjects? It does. It does. It did not uh, leave them out. Um, later, you know, one of the one of the most important things that the law did, for example, to limit um, the bedal to uh, to peacetime, which so, was the exchange that you could pay instead of serving in the military. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that was a very common practice. Up to that time, up to the Balkan Wars and later, most of the well-to-do upper-middle class and upper-class Ottomans did not serve in the army because they paid this exemption fee and basically got exempted from the from the from service. Throughout the war, they since the Ottoman economy and finances were so bad, 
they um, had they still felt obliged to continue to, to continue this practice because the the exemption fee generated enormous money. Um, I mean, enormous in the Ottoman terms, enormous money for the Ottomans. Uh, they had to cancel this in 1916 because of the manpower shortages. So this is one of the lessons that they learned from the Balkan War is that they actually need much tighter and wider conscription policies to keep up with the sort of exigencies of modern warfare. You talk about a couple of other things in the book, other lessons that they learned or other kind of transformations that started during the Balkan War period. Um, one having to do, I think, with the rise of sort of a certain kind of religious rhetoric or mm-hmm. a relationship between the Ottoman state and non-Muslim communities. And also, uh, maybe this is a related question of what happens to an older notion of Ottomanism in which, you know, all of the many um, multi-religious, multi-ethnic communities of the empire were supposed to live and fight together. What are the lessons of the Balkan War period on that front? When I say the Balkan Wars transformed the Ottoman society, it dramatically transformed um, the unionists or the governments and Ottoman states' approach to society. And that's one of the most important things that, that they did. First of all, I mean, together with the conscription laws, they also realized that the modern wars cannot be fought uh, without the contribution, significant contribution of the civilian society. So that's a very important lesson for them. They didn't really, they hadn't really thought about it before. And, you know, even they, they did, they did not have policies to do that. So one of the first things that you see after the disaster of the First Balkan War is to est- is the establishment of a widespread network of um, civil society organizations. So, Mudafai Milliye Jeminete and uh, its corollary organizations. And this is a very extensive, extensive in the sense of the Ottoman Empire, extensive organization which draw uh, the, or which required the cooperation of the local elites um, in the provinces of the Ottoman Empire, which brought uh, that big campaign, um, for example, slightly later, that big navy campaign uh, to strengthen uh, the Ottoman navy against the, against the Greeks, because this is the war that the Unions expected in 1914. They were sure they will fight a war pretty soon against the Greeks, and the need for a stronger navy was a very important pillar of their um, transformed political uh, psyche. And in that sense, their understanding of the others in the Ottoman Empire transformed as well. So sometimes if you read the literature about Balkan Wars, we assume that the Ottomans started this war you know, with a Turkish ideology. Um, it wasn't that accurate. I mean, the Ottomans, the war, the Balkan Wars for the Ottomans was a non-religious war, a non-religious conflict at the beginning. But one other lesson, one other observations they made during the war, but uh, was that uh, their enemies used religion or religious rhetoric, to be more accurate, very extensively. Bulgarians especially uh, resorted to that type of rhetoric against the Ottomans, and they clearly observed that it works very well. So slightly after that, uh, even before the Unionists came to power in, 19, in the 1913 Babi Ali coup, they quickly started to use religious rhetoric, sending, for example, uh, students of the religious seminaries to the front and to preach more extensively, to use, to use religious symbols more extensively. The Balkan Wars did not make the Ottomans Turks. They did not make them Turkist. But they clearly raised um, questions about non-Muslims' loyalty uh, to the empire. So loyalty in the sense that they were 
not really willing to fight. That's the uh, that's one of the reasons they uh, one of the lessons or one of the observations they made. This is pretty much inaccurate, but at least by late by the second half of nineteen thirteen, they were very clear about this. They were mm-hmm. so they saw other people, other um, polities using religious rhetoric very successfully to mobilize, mobilize not mm-hmm. only soldiers but as you previously mentioned you know all other parts of social life mm-hmm. um to a war effort and so they began to think oh perhaps we too could use this exactly um, that's what they did tool mm-hmm. that's what they did i mean the did rhetoric change very quickly from a more civic ottomanist uh citizenship based military experience to a more you know religiously oriented rhetoric which they observed works work very well and you know to, not to mobilize the society but also to encourage the soldiers to stay on the front and mm-hmm. fought as bravely as willingly as possible hence one of the speculations or maybe not that speculative anymore jihad which they declared uh in uh, november 1914 i and you know some other important researchers argue that is actually more uh, inward looking process more um more uh, more of a tool to mobilize ottoman society as much as a tool to mobilize uh the colonies uh mm-hmm. or the muslims in the colonies against the uh, great britain and france let's talk a little bit about what is the inward looking jihad i mean one of the things that you also found in your work it seems is that uh the Ottoman efforts to mobilize both soldiers and everybody else for the war effort during, like, starting with, you know, with World War One, met some resistance or mm-hmm. tiredness or um, disquiet on the part of the, of, you know, the, the, the inhabitants of the Ottoman Empire. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that relationship between what the state thought it needed for the war effort and what, um, how people responded. At the beginning of that set of questions about Balkan Wars, I said the um, there were two major two major factors that um, or two major ways that the Balkan Wars affected the uh, unions. One of them is the policies. I mean, the new conscription law, civil society organizations, etc. The second one is they it dramatically the defeat dramatically changed their psyche, their political understanding of the present and the future. They clearly put them in a more apocalyptic sense they they you know began to see the future in an apocalyptic sense they were sure that there will be a war another war pretty soon that's one thing you know the, all of them are almost you know almost unanimously they thought that they did not expect a world war and second another defeat they were pretty sure would spell the disintegration the end of the empire does that's a that's a very grim realization for them so to avoid that they did everything in their capacity and one of them is of course to resort to this more religious oriented rhetoric to for example eliminate all possible political rivals so that's also uh, a continuation of that process both within the military and without so that's also you know sort of cleaning the political scene from the uh, from the potential from the real and potential enemies or rivals I mean, making the parliament more or less meaningless. So right. filling this 1914 elections basically was a, you know, uh, was an election without competition. Right. You're, you're referring to the elimination of internal rivals within the empire for the Committee of Union and Progress. Exactly. Undoing this sort of liberal um, multi-party order that had emerged mm-hmm. just years prior. Exactly. 
But if we focus on these, exclusively on these things, we may get the wrong impression that the society was in line as well. Right. Society was, you know, got radicalized, got, you know, uh, filled with the notions and feelings of revenge. Um, so my observations was actually pretty much the opposite. So, I mean, that's, we need more studies about this. And here is a very good dissertation subject. If you have listeners who are looking for a dissertation subject, that's a good dissertation subject to look on, to focus on. Um, my impression is, um, while the unionists, members of the Committee of Union and Progress, get those lessons, the war, the Balkan Wars, defeat in the Balkan Wars also brought the war and all the disasters associated with the war to the door of the Ottomans. So that's the first thing, that's the first time since the Doksanu Charbi, uh, since 1877-78, for the first time the Ottomans came so close to a war, and war in the sense of widespread conscription, the Balkan war mobilization was also pretty comprehensive, hundreds of thousands of refugees flooding through the streets of Istanbul. You know, every single person, I would argue, in Istanbul probably met with the disaster of these, of these Muslim refugees. And also a very clear idea, that's also, you know, kind of controversial, a very clear idea that the Ottoman Empire was not ready to fight such a big war, such a modern war. Because the Ottoman performance was not that, I mean, was pretty disastrous, pretty horrible. And people realized this, people, um, by the end of the first Balkan War and afterwards, the most common feeling in the society was war awareness. I mean, people were already tired. Balkan Wars, in comparison to the world to World War One, Balkan Wars was a short experience, right? Um, but people got very tired because of its consequences. Right. And as you say, war, more than any other time in re the recent Ottoman history, was coming very close to home. Mm -hmm. Indeed, mm -hmm. When the War Came Home is the title of your book. We'll take a quick music break. We're going to talk more about that book and more about what this huge disconnect between what the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress, saw as the needs of the empire uh, and what, the, what could be expected from the everyday subjects meant for the experience of war and how that experience of war transformed Ottoman society. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Susie Ferguson here with a return guest, Yit Akun, author of a book entitled When the War Came Home, The Ottomans' Great War and the Devastation of an Empire. 
recently out from Stanford University Press. Indeed, Yit Akin is one of many scholars who are part of a new, a new turn in the historiography of the First World War that has been especially, I think, rich within the field of Ottoman studies. At the end of our conversation, we're going to talk about some of the new historiographical questions that have emerged, some of the major debates that are still being discussed uh, within this field uh, with our guest, Yit Akin. But first, we're going to talk more about that book and more about the subject of how war transformed the Ottoman Empire. We want to emphasize this is a really crucial question uh, for our guests who are trying to understand the broader implications of the First World War for the Ottoman Empire because a lot of times in our broader narrative of the history of the Middle East, uh, we tend to emphasize continuities between the period before the First World War and what came after in the Republic of Turkey and post-Ottoman states. However, we have to also confront that while the war ne didn't necessarily change everything, it is a major period of transformation, not necessarily a break or rupture, but something that really needs to be grappled with in terms of a transformative force for culture and society and politics. So what we wanted to ask you, Yit, is if I had been an Ottoman subject living between the years of 1914 and, say, 1918 or even 1922, what are the major transformations that I would have seen or even experienced? Well, many things, because this was a pretty busy period. If you're a man between the ages of 20 and 45, um, most probably you will be conscripted. I mean, conscription usually means four long years of service under difficult circumstances. Transportation under difficult circumstances, inadequate food, inadequate clothing, um, usually inadequate ammunition, depending on the front uh, where you are. Long walks, injury, disease, most probably death. So that's the man's experience for, you know, for that age cohort. And, you know, as I discuss in the book, that age cohort expanded unprecedentedly throughout the war. And by the end of the war, the Ottomans, at least on paper, they tried to conscript uh, men between the ages of 17 and 55. But in reality, that was also even bigger, even larger than that. Um, so if you are a man, most probably... If you are in the provinces, most probably you will be conscripted and that period of service uh, will last. And after that, you may, like, you know, 250,000 of Ottoman soldiers, as Yujal Yanukta showed in his, in his recent book, you may very well end up in uh, POW camps, um, either in Burma or, you know, um, Russia or Egypt. That uh, will extend your time away from your family. If you are in the provinces, you'll most probably see the impressment of your only farm animal into army service. So the loss of that animal is usually, usually spelled a disaster for, for the families, for these poor families. If you are a woman, you'll most probably see a dramatic decline in your, the ability to survive and to maintain uh, the livelihood of your family. This will force you into all kinds of businesses and interactions that you didn't do before. Women, I mean, of course, before the war, Great War worked pretty hard, especially in agriculture, but also in the cities. But the war forced women to be employed in forced transportation, for example. Army used women very extensively, uh, or forced agricultural service. 
or um, you will, in addition to all the house chores you do, uh, taking care of your family, taking care of your farm, um, you'll do all kind of agricultural work, which is very hard. So if you are a woman, expect that kind of very hard work as the uh, recent works of Elif Meyer, Metin Soy, or Kate Denny's uh, dissertation, or Chi Demos showed in the recent works. If you are in the cities, uh, the life, you know, in addition to that, I mean, maybe also in the provinces as well, but, you know, um, poverty and very difficult life uh, conditions expects you. So war pushes, especially in the second half of the war, the wartime conditions and the absence of man pushes you into deep poverty and, you know, all kind of crime and uh, prostitution um, and other things that uh, the war came. If you are in the Arab provinces, uh, a big famine is probably what you will expect uh, or what you will experience. In 1915, 1916, as our uh, readers know, uh, as our listeners know very well, um, Lebanon and Syria expected, uh, experienced a very deep and devastating famine caused partly by the Ottoman wartime policies, partly by uh, locus part by the blockade, uh, but all in all, you know, killed at least three hundred thousand, somewhere between three hundred thousand and four hundred thousand people. So uh, that, in that sense, may very well be uh, a case as well. If you are in the east, if you are a Muslim, most probably uh, you will escape from the advance of the Russian army. So that one and a half million, maybe. Muslims, Ottoman Muslims, both Kurdish and Turkish and other Muslims, um, fled from the uh, incoming advancing Russian army under very disastrous circumstances. In the last chapter of the book, again, a new chapter that I wrote while I revised my dissertation, I also talk about the you know, disastrous circumstances of those Muslim refugees. If you're an Armenian, that's a very different experience as well, as the recent literature shows very well. Despite the graveness of the wartime circumstances, the unionists did not hesitate to engage in demographic engineering projects. One of them is, of course, the deportation and eventual annihilation of the, a million of Ottoman Armenians. You um, were forced to leave your um, ancient homelands on your you know, death march. Uh, you'll probably, most probably, will be attacked. Uh, by, you know, tribes or by, you know, um, by subchetes. If you are lucky enough to survive that long march and ended up in the desert, Syrian desert, life there is also, will also be very, very difficult. So the Armenian genocide in that sense is the horrible experience what most Armenians went through and ended up with the devastation of one of the ancient peoples of the Middle East. So these are just few things that war, uh, war caused. Right. And all of this is part of the Ottoman defeat, but of course a, a larger expression of how incredibly destructive and impactful the war was for people. And to say that war is destructive is a, a point worth reiterating, but it's not where the historical processes stop, right? All of, Each of these mass phenomena that occurs, whether mobilization or agrarian collapse, let's say, or mass displacement that occurs, each of them prompt uh, responses from both the central uh, central state and the military mm -hmm. uh, and, and local society. Can you talk more about those responses, the, the changes within Ottoman society that unfolded uh, amidst these 
developments? That's a very important question because in the literature we um, we have studies, um, more and more studies, luckily more and more studies detailing the uh, the devastation that the war caused. Um, in the book, I you know try to put them in an analytical framework and argue that um, the war and wartime conditions and that specific mentality that we discussed in the first part uh, that the unions found themselves in pushed them or obliged them to intervene into the deepest corners of the empire to mobilize and men and resources um, as never before. So that, in that sense, uh, the war intensified the interaction between the state and society, if you can use these abstract terms. So, but this was, a, this was not a new process. I mean, the Ottoman state, the relationship between the Ottoman state and its subjects and citizens uh, was already intensifying since at least mid-19th century, right? All, you know, transmigrant reforms and afterwards with the establishment of a modern educational framework, um, gradually expanding military service, the state established, you know, a new taxation, the system of taxation, all kinds of policies that we know now learning from the new literature um, intensified the relationship between the state and society. But the war starting with the Balkan Wars and continued with the Great War, of course, intensified that process unprecedentedly. More and more people, almost everywhere throughout the empire, not became the subject, but got interacted with um, the agents of the Ottoman state, with the discourses of the Ottoman state, with the policies of the Ottoman state, and, you know, state became a reality in their everyday lives. That's the problem. So they, every day, uh, they experience some sort of uh, intervention um, from the state into their into their lives. That uh, I argue in this book had a disastrous um, consequence uh, for uh, the Ottoman society. So, can you talk more about the ramifications of this overall intensification of the state-society relationship? Because it's not a necessarily smooth relationship. It's a very forced intensification. That's a very brutal. It's not only intense, those interactions uh, were not only unprecedentedly intense, but also very brutal. Usually involved violence, usually involved forced impressment of the animal or, you know, um, taking your last scrap of grain. So these are not really smooth and voluntary processes. Usually uh, they were, you know, a significant amount of violence was involved in those interactions. Um, the most important ramification, as far as I can see, when looking at those um, that period, is a deep legitimacy crisis. A, a deep crisis of legitimacy, uh, not only for the unionists, unionists from the very beginning, as we discussed in the first part, from the very beginning fought an uphill war uh, to legitimize this war to Ottoman people. This is why they invested, as I discussed in the second chapter of the book, uh, they invested very heavily in the rhetoric uh, to show the Ottomans uh, or to describe mobilization in defensive terms. So we were attacked, you know, we have to you know, protect our honor, we have to protect the empire, even though the reality was the uh, was the reverse. I mean, they were the ones who attacked Russia. But the most important, I mean, as the war progressed, that crisis of legitimacy got deepened and became even more destructive, even even deeper as, uh, you know, as these uh, interactions got more intensified, more became more brutal. And in a way, it goes to what Chris was saying earlier about seeing the war, not just, you know, seeing the war as a moment of 
change, not just continuity from earlier periods, right? Because the state building of the late 19th century was also invasive and was also, you know, the state was far more present in people's lives than it had previously been, but it wasn't perhaps quite as coercive as it becomes during World War One. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I mean, this is why war was a special period and this is why the ramifications, all those ramifications are much more, much deeper and much more important for the future of the empire, for the fate of the empire. I mean, I argue in this book that legitimacy crisis by the end of the war was not only about the unionist and unionist government and their wartime policies, they were almost unanimously were hated. Um, and, you know, think about that. Sivas Congress, the, uh, the major nationalist congress in 1919, took an oath to say that basically they were not unionists. They don't aim to revive unionist, uh, the Committee of Union and Progress. So they were, all, they were so unanimously hated um, in Empire. But that legitimacy crisis was also about uh, the state, was also about the empire itself. Because, you know, as I said, as a result of those four long years and four intensified and brutal interaction, people got a better idea, I mean, better quote-unquote, got a better idea, clearer idea about what state is, what state was. The state for them, at least in those four years, was a coercive force, terribly coercive wars, which conscripted their only breadwinner, which impressed their only farm animal, which got their last scrap of grain, which forced them to move to different places, distant places. In, but in the case of the crisis, in the case of the advancing enemy, um, something, an organization which could not protect them, which could not prevent, for example, for profiteering, which cannot hmm. prevent inflation, which cannot maintain their lives. Um, so that's basically a useless organization hmm. by the end of the So war. what did this mean for uh, those who would come after? I mean, so for the, the those who wanted to build a new state after World War One, That was kind of an advantage for them, um, I would argue. I mean, this is actually something that I study for, uh, for my next book. So the next four years, between 1918 and 1922, is, uh, I don't want to exaggerate that, but equally eventful. Equally eventful mm -hmm. because you see the uh, slow disintegration, unlike, I mean, that's something I have to emphasize and that's something I remind my German and Austro-Hungarian, historians of German and Austro-Hungarian. Unlike them, the Ottoman Empire did not dissolve by 1918, but continued all the way to 1922, right? And those four years also saw even deeper transformations in Anatolia this time because the Arab provinces were out of the Ottoman Empire. There were transformations as well. That was kind of an advantage for them because the Ottoman state, uh, as I said, as you know, as a result of these interactions, got lost most of its legitimacy in the eyes of the ordinary people. But that's also a disadvantage for them because the people had a very clear idea, idea uh, what war is. So what I mean, they uh, even better idea than the Balkan Wars, even better idea um, by the beginning of 1919. If we read the memoirs of the nationalist and later Kemalist um, officers, um, you clearly see the idea how difficult it is to mobilize people uh, for one more war. They um, hated that deeply um, and very passionately. As we know, in 19, between 1919 and 1921, there were a bunch of revolts uh, throughout the Anatolia, and the national historiography put them together and usually blamed that this was um, a job of either the British spies or reactionaries. 
I would argue these were mostly anti-mobilization, anti-war, anti-unionist um, revolts where people show their mostly show their reaction uh, against one more uh, process of mobilization, one more process of war. Right, because as we didn't mention it, but one of the other consequences uh, in this legitimacy of this legitimacy crisis is, of course, uh, desertion, leaving the front. People won't go to war. Uh, a, a huge percentage of the Ottoman army, they, unilater they unilaterally leave the war before the Ottomans surrender, right? Mm -hmm. They desert and run away, Exactly. I mean, Mehmet Beşikçi wrote very extensively about this, right? By the end of then, if you read the uh, reports by German officers or, you know, a famous report in 1917 by uh, the founder of the Republic, Mustafa Kemal, uh, then the commander of the 7th Army uh, in Aleppo, um, he very extensively talks about how difficult uh, or how, how how terrible the rates of desertion are. I mean, by the end of the war, by 1918, um, maybe 500,000 people, 500,000 soldiers, and think about that, 500,000 soldiers had already deserted the army were roaming uh, the mountains in Anatolia and the Arab provinces. So um, that's a basically reaction against the, against the war. And these numbers exponentially grew in 1917 and 1918. By the time, uh, after 19, after somewhere uh, in the second half of the war, the Ottoman Empire lost its capacity um, to re-recruit these people, reconscript these people. Mm -hmm. So none of the uh, policies, none of the uh, regulations worked um, sentencing them or, you know, um, none of them worked. Um, and, you know, the army basically melted away in that sense. But interestingly, I mean, you expect that uh, in the face of such a grim desertion rates, the army uh, may might have ceased to fight, right? This didn't happen. Uh, all the way to the end of the war, the Ottoman army remained in the battlefield, uh, even though in a much smaller scale. Um, but, but in that sense, was pretty resilient. Um, so that's also, that surprised its enemies and its allies at the same time. That's also something interesting that we have to underline, I guess. And maybe this is something we can leave for the next book, but we'll just ask for a little preview since you've already alluded to it. Given the war fatigue that existed by the end of the Balkan Wars and the First World War among the, the populace, given the unpopularity of the Committee and Union of Progress and its agenda, how did a military fighting force largely led, but not exclusively led by former central CUP figures, maybe not the most central figures, um, managed to uh, enlist a broader Anatolian population, maybe people who had even deserted during the First World War to fight in a new war against the multi-front, sort of a multi-front war against different armies that resulted in the Republic of Turkey. That's also a very good question, right? I mean, this is why we need newer studies about the uh, uh, national struggle, Kurtuz Savaşı, that about that period, right? Uh, and also on its military aspects, because the desertion rates, I mean, first thing we have to emphasize, national struggle in its scope and intensity was a much smaller one than uh, the Great War, right? That's the first thing that we have to take note of. But having said that, the desertion rates were also very high uh, during the uh, nationalist campaign national struggle between 1919 and 1922. How did they manage to, how did the nationalist officer or nationalist leadership manage to enlist these people? I argue two things. 
one of them. They also, like the unionists before, I mean, some of them themselves were unionists and were still unionists, they learned the lessons of the Great War very well. So, because all of them, most of them, were active officers on the field, they studied those lessons and conditions very deeply and very accurately. This time, however, those lessons uh, worked for their success. So we, uh, they did not experience, for example, those huge logistics problems uh, that really um, uh, destroyed the Ottoman army's uh, fighting capacity in World War I. They learned those lessons and they used violence very extensively through Istiklal Mahkemeleri uh, to enlist these people. Violence was also part of that. Coercion was part of that. But in addition to that, they also used propaganda very extensively. They used that, you know, um, nationalist, Islamist propaganda uh, in a really uh, creative, uh, in a really creative, innovative way uh, to enlist people. Of course, the most important reason, I would argue, that the people became willing to fight one more time uh, is the coming of the enemy. And this time, very real. Uh, occupation of Izmir in May 1919 was a really turning point, really important turning point, which uh, made people aware of the gravity of the, of the, of the ramification, of the consequences of the, um, of the war. And also uh, a big mistake on the part of the French coming with uh, Armenian legionnaires uh, in the southern front. People realized that if they did not resist, uh, those Greeks and Armenians would come occupy their provinces, most probably will take away uh, their properties and, you know, uh, a much more difficult life would expect them. So that realization, um, at least on the part of the provincial elites, uh, was the most important reason that they decide uh, to support the national struggle, even though they did not agree with everything on the, uh, with the nation's leadership. You know, one of the sort of big things to learn from your book is that moments where the state intervenes in people's lives in this like extremely violent way um, produce different outcomes for different people across different geographies and genders, right? Um, and that, you know, it sets up a kind of like interesting set of conditions for the for the nationalist project that came directly after um, and that you know to consider which in some ways you know continues until the present in Turkey as in many other places so you know exactly exactly I mean that's the um, and one interesting thing is that memory that popular memory about World War One was very much alive all the way up to 19 up to 1950s I mean in this book uh, I show some examples in uh, the form of um, laments or you know folk songs or folk stories that was pretty much alive especially in 1930s i gave an example in the book in every single village that yashar kemal visited in 1930s he listened to ballads he listened to uh, laments about world war one so that popular memory popular memory about safar berlik people called the war as safar berlik um, got pretty much lost and transformed over time um, under the huge impact of uh, nationalist uh, history writing.
So I want to ask both of you as a scholar who doesn't work primarily on, on World War One, there has obviously been in the past, say, 10 years, an enormous outpouring of work on this sort of four to six to 10 year period. What are the things that people are really arguing about um, in this kind of new wave of scholarship? That's an important observation, Susie. I mean, um, as you said, in the last 10 years, 15 years, maybe, uh, the center of gravity of the scholarship about World War I has shifted, I would say, into more you know, innovative, creative dimensions. Now we, we see studies about the social life, about the culture, about memory, about women, about provinces, about famine, and of course, more and more studies about Armenian genocide. So the, that center of gravity has shifted from the diplomatic and military history towards a more you know, social and cultural history. But also, I mean, those other fields, military and diplomatic history, experienced their own renaissances in themselves. They became um, higher quality. They became um, much more sophisticated in communication, in dialogue uh, with the broader scholarship on World War I. Yeet, another thing I've observed in the transformation of the scholarship on the First World War that's been taking place within Ottoman studies is that it's very much happening in tandem with a broader transformation of the global scholarship of the war that has occurred with increased interest in, say, colonial experiences of the war. So African or South Asian or East Asian personnel in European armies during the war, uh, interest in the historical experience of the quote-unquote non-West going beyond the great powers. When you go to conferences on the First World War, increasingly these settings in which the Ottoman Empire is positioned very interestingly sort of as an outlier from some of the other European states, uh, these settings play a, take a, a very prominent role. So uh, what do you think are some of the main points about the Ottoman experience of the First World War that speak to this larger historiography that maybe even change how we understand the war more broadly in a fundamental way? What are the ways in which the Ottoman experience maybe is somehow unique, but also perhaps exemplary uh, of some of the questions that concern scholars today? Now we are much more in dialogue in communication with our colleagues who study uh, France's, Germany's, Great Britain's colonies, um, Great War experiences as well. You know, uh, Lawrence, T. Lawrence used the term sideshow for the Ottoman Empire. So the side, those sideshows, not only the Ottoman Empire, but all kinds of sideshows became uh, pretty much central to the study uh, of the Great War. Now there is much more interest in the colonies, how the colonial people understand and experienced and perceived the war and what kind of ramifications. They had enormous ramifications uh, for the afterward, afterwards. In India, in you know the whole Wilsonian moment, Erez Manila's term, the whole Wilsonian moment is a direct uh, response to developments in World War I. And then the disappointment of the colonial people um, who experienced that process, you know, Gandhi and the Indians are the most important example, but, you know, as far as well. Um, so people are much more interested and uh, much more passionate to learn about those colonial experiences, uh, which had been seen as sideshows, another type of sideshows. Also, um, the experience of the Ottoman Empire, the experience of these lesser belligerents, 
lesser in the sense of not of those three major industrialized powers, but also, you know, the you know, experience of Bulgaria, experience of Serbia, experience of the neutrals. You know, uh, Persia experienced a great famine, even though it was a neutral country, right? You know, we study, we still need um, social histories of Persia or Iran in, uh, in World War I. 25% of its population got devastated as a result of famine. So that's a big disaster. And its memory got also lost in Iran. So that's also a very interesting thing. But um, also, you know, other uh, neutral guy in China, for example, there's a big interest in World War One because the Chinese uh, more and more under this new, you know, these new times in these new times, uh, Chinese uh, came to understand World War One as their own transformative moment. In Japan, there is such an interest in you know everywhere, you know, especially these you know lesser belligerents. Uh, there is a huge interest in in World War One. Well, one other point when thinking about this Ottoman experience in a broader context that strikes me when I read your work, Yit, is that you know if you read about the experience of World War One in Europe, it was kind of like the war was taking place at the fronts. People were getting a very sanitized version back home of what the war was like, and it was only after the war. Uh, seminal works like All Quiet on the Western Front, people who weren't soldiers fighting in the war, any sense of how devastating on a mass scale the First World War was. That it was only in World War II with more extensive aerial bombing and these types of things, of course, the Holocaust and major demographic engineering in Europe, that the war came home, the Second World War. But the Ottoman experience is an example of that same transformation happening during a much earlier period of history. Is it possible to see the Ottoman experience of the First World War, not only as the demise of an old imperial system, but also as a preface to what's unfolding in the European state system and, and kind of comes to fruition during the Second World War? Exactly. I mean, that's also a question um, in line with your previous question, which I forget to answer. Uh, while I was talking about the historiography, the, the, the parallel, the similarities and differences of the Ottoman experience of Great War, what can uh, studying Ottoman Great War experience teach us or teach everyone about the broader World War I experience, right? That, that's the question. And, you know, this question is also in relation with that one. I mean, in this book, I argue that um, the Ottoman experience in one sense was similar to other belligerent experiences because all of them experienced that huge problem of mobilizing um, enormous numbers and keeping those huge armies on the battlefield for four long years. So that's a big problem. That's a big uh, issue for everyone. Everyone struggled with that. Uh, but what made the Ottoman Empire different or, you know, important for comparison, the Ottomans did not have the tools to do that. It, the empire did not, I mean, in this book, you know, I, I have uh, a sentence that I like. The Ottomans tried to fight this first truly industrialized war of the modern era without having an industry. So the Ottoman industry was in its infancy. I mean, it was very modest. The Ottoman Empire did not have uh, a sound financial system did not have an extensive transportation network, which was actually very rudimentary, uh, did not have a productive agricultural economy, did not have extensive demographic resources. Of all the major belligerents of the war, the Ottomans were probably the, most, the least prepared uh, to fight such a huge and long conflict. So I guess the 
absence of those uh, major components of modern warfare made Ottoman Empire important for comparison. Why? Because the absence of those did not make the Ottoman war less total than the other belligerents. The opposite is true in this book, I argue. The opposite is true. So the absence, in the, in the face of the absence of these major co components of modern warfare, what did the unionists do? They intervened even more. They experienced with uh, newer policies. Um, see the, I mean, hundreds of new laws were passed. They were constant, they constantly experimented to intervene into the society to extract resources and manpower. In, at the end, the absence of those things that I said um, made the war for the Ottomans even more total, probably, for the Ottoman population, even more total than the other belligerents' wartime experiences. And that's in relation with your second question. So the Ottoman people were very much aware of the disaster that they experienced uh, because they experienced this very much in their everyday life. And for the first time uh, in the empire's history, in those numbers. It wouldn't be an exaggeration, except for a very small section of the society. Almost every neighborhood, almost every single village uh, experienced the disaster of the war. There was no escape for that. Well, on that note, Yeet, uh, we'll bring this conversation to a close. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's, our second, it's your second time on the program. But I certainly learned a lot in the second conversation as well. Thanks a lot. And, you know, let me appreciate the Ottoman History Podcast one more time. So thousands of people are listening to you guys from all around the world. That's a great, great service to the field of Ottoman studies. We try not to think too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we will end this by also thanking those thousands of you who have stayed to the end of this um, really, I think, comprehensive discussion of the Ottoman war experience uh, and indeed the subject of how war transformed the Ottoman Empire and war transformed Ottoman society. We want to remind you, as always, we've got a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find more reading and also check out the book of Yit Akin, When the War Came Home. Uh, we invite you to leave your comments and questions on the page or in our Facebook group. Get in touch with the tens of thousands of people who are out there uh, following and commenting on our podcast. That's all for this episode. Join us next time in another episode of Ottoman History Podcast.